0: Welcome to Speaking in Maine on Maine Public Radio. I'm KJ Kumla Today we take you to the Midcoast Forum on Foreign Relations in Rockland, Maine, where Christopher Miller, former Secretary of Defense during the Trump administration, discussed the warnings about America's most dangerous enemies. This program was pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. It will be archived on our website, mainepublic.org. Click on Radio to hear this program again at your convenience and to access many other past Speaking in Maine programs. This program will also be available as a podcast. Introducing Christopher today is George Look, Midcoast Forum President.
1: Good afternoon, and I'd like to welcome everyone who's here, as well as those listening to us on the stations of Maine Public Radio, to the 447th meeting of the Midcoast Forum on Foreign Relations. Today's meeting comes to you from the, Elk, from the Elks Event Center in Rockland, and I'm George Look. The Midcoast Forum was founded in 1983. We're soon going to be entering our 40th year, and the purpose was to invite a foreign affairs expert each month to speak and answer questions on an issue critical to the formulation of U.S. foreign policy. Audios of past forum talks, and information about upcoming forum programs are available on our website at midcoastforum.org. If you have an interest in keeping informed about key foreign affairs issues and wanna become a member of the forum, you will find um, our membership form on our website, and to join us, just apply. We're pleased today to have Mr. Christopher Miller with us to speak on warnings about America's most dangerous enemies. Christopher C. Miller served as the acting Secretary of Defense from November 2020 to January 2021 and Director of the National Counterterrorism Center from August to November 2020. Earlier in 2020, Mr. Miller was Assistant Secretary for Special Operations and Low-Intensity Conflict. He also previously served as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Special Operations and Combating Terrorism. In these positions, he oversaw the full range of Department of Defense activities in these areas that are critical to U.S. national security. From March 2018 through December 2019, Mr. Miller served as special assistant to the president and senior director for counterterrorism and transnational threats at the National Security Council. Mr. Miller was raised in Iowa City, Iowa and is a retired U.S. Army officer. His military career began, he began his military career as an enlisted infantryman in the Army Reserve in 1983. In 1993, he transferred to Special Forces and served in numerous command and staff positions within the 5th Special Forces Group, that's an airborne group, and he served with other special operations organizations culminating with command of the 2nd Battalion, 5th Special Forces Group. Mr. Miller is a veteran of numerous deployments to both Afghanistan and Iraq, and he retired from the Army in 2014. Mr. Miller has a Bachelor of Arts degree in History from George Washington University, a Master of Arts degree in National Security Studies from the Navy War College, and is a graduate of the Naval College of Command and Staff and of the Army War College. Chris, I want to welcome you to the Mid Coast Forum.
2: Thank you, George. Thank you all for having me and my lovely bride. Who? Wh- what anniversary are we on? I think 32, so, and Eric, thanks for having us in the Speakers Bureau, bringing us up. Does anybody remember where they were 21 years ago today on the 12th, Septem- uh, 12th of September, 2001? I can tell you where I was. I was, sta- I was in line, uh, I was at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, which is, which is in Clarksville, Tennessee, and we were in line to go through the gate to get onto Fort Campbell. Normally in the Army, everyone has to show up for work at 0630 to do physical training. The day prior, you'd usually go to work about, you know, six o'clock and you'd have a sticker on your car window that would authorize you access onto the military installation. They just wave you through, wave you through. Well of course after the attacks of the day prior, All of a sudden, they decided that every single vehicle had to be inspected before entry. So my buddy and I decided, well, let's get up early and get to work, because we were in the 5th Special Forces Group, which was the Green Beret unit that was responsible for the Middle East, so we knew that we were going to respond to the attacks, and we were going to Afghanistan eventually thought, no problem. Well, the 25,000 other soldiers that were stationed at Fort Campbell, <laughs> Kentucky, had the same idea. So at this time, 21 years ago, I left for work at 05 in the morning. I was still sitting in line on Highway 1A, I think was the name of it, Kate, the, the drag that goes into the installation. I think we got to work about 1.30 uh, that afternoon. So I always think back to that moment. And if that doesn't sum up the American strategic culture, we close the door after the horse has already left the barn. And I thought to myself, like, wouldn't it be magical if for once as a country, we could actually think through these things beforehand and organize ourselves correctly so we don't have that strategic surprise? And that's kind of the subject of what I want to talk to you about today. But before I get started, The interweb is the most amazing invention in the human history. And I was famous people from Maine. I knew a couple of them, obviously. Congressman Ziegler, where are you, sir? Uh, You're not, uh, uh. sir, you're not political figures. I'm waiting for you. I just wanted to thank you for coming today and your willingness to serve. And your willingness to put, you know, to use the Teddy Roosevelt analogy, you know, be the man in the arena, person in the arena. And I know how difficult that is. So I look forward to seeing your name on this, for, uh, this sheet someday. I'll tell you who I found. Well, I got to tell you, I love me some Bill Cohen. Senator Cohen and Secretary of Defense Cohen, he actually closed the barn door before the horse left in 1987 when he... And uh, Sam Nunn created the United States Special Operations Command and put in place a civilian architecture called the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Special Operations Low Intensity Conflict. And so I have enormous gratitude and respect (coughs) for former Secretary of Defense Cohen. And he saw the threat before everyone else did. And what they did and what we did during because of that legislation was directly responsible for the success of special operations 21 years ago until recently. Well, actually, the war continues, unfortunately, in some places, but we're in an entirely different place. So that's the kind of vision, of course, that you see from Maine. But I'll tell you who, who knows who my favorite Mainer is. Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain. And I, I know... I know everybody's like, I wanted to ask you all this. If you're from Maine, I'm sure you're rolling your eyes right now. Like, here we go again. Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain. For heaven's sakes, can we have a better Mainer than that? Um, Because... It's probably like, you know, you go to the Veterans Day speeches, and the person gets up and starts telling you about the 11th hour, the 11th day, the 11th month, and you're like, come on, can you come up with something original, please? I feel that way when I'm talking about Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, but he had a profound effect on my development as a man, a husband, an officer, and a leader, and, you know, Ken Burns did that series, The Civil War, and then I, I... I was transfixed by this narrative and this person, and you have to then get the killer angels, the, probably one of the magnificent books about the Civil War. Here's what's amazing about Joshua Lawrence <coughs> Chamberlain to me. Most people, familiarity breeds contempt, right? You're just like, oh, something comes up. Like, he did something horrendous back in the day. Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, maybe... Please get with me after if you have any dirt on him. But I actually... He raises in my mind, and in my respect for him, grows the more I learn about him. Integrity, integrity, courage, honesty, commitment, public service, candor those are the irrefutable traits that I learned from Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain. So I'll just tell you, I'll, I'll just go to the bottom line right now, George, and we can eat. <laughs> I, I absolutely believe that this nation needs to return to its cultural and strategic roots, exemplified by Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain and the citizen soldiers that have traditionally fought our wars. So there you got it, we're done, let's, okay, George, yeah, you're like, okay, Chris, keep talking. Um, okay, why, who am I? You kind of heard my back, little background. Uh, I joined the, I'm just a guy from Iowa, had a desire to serve, came from a family of civil servants and public service in my family. Some people are doctors, lawyers, bankers, whatever. Our family does public service and uh, join the army. And due to blind luck, chance, whatever, bad luck, maybe my wife would say, uh, I was I did 30 something years as just a civil servant, military enlisted person, a, uh, an officer, and then uh, a gen- just a government employee. And I uh, was really committed to uh, the war against Al-Qaeda and had the opportunity to become a political appointee, which is a little bit of a difference. You know, you have just career people that work for, that's what I was. You work for whatever the administration is. There's no politics involved. You just show up and you do your job for America. Obviously, when you become a political appointee, you represent the president. And I think I could probably say with a great deal of candor and maybe understatement, uh, I served for the final 73 days of the administration in what what I would describe as probably one of the most disruptive and interesting periods in American history. Understatement. Um, I wasn't ever supposed to be there. People like me are not supposed to end up in positions like that. Uh, there's an author that talks about the blob in Washington, D.C., the think tankers, the uh, journalists, the pundits, uh, the academics. They're the people that are supposed to be in charge, but they all signed that Never Trump letter. And I'm telling you, Trump, like, they paid attention to that. Like, oh, you're not going to be in. So that cleared the field for a whole bunch of us, that many people described us as unexperienced. Perhaps we were... Uh, I would definitely say we weren't unqualified. Most of us had fought the nation's wars and had actually learned about foreign policy, uh, not around a table or a think tank, but out in the field. So uh, I described my elevation from mid-level government functionary to... The second most it was it's mo- second most powerful person in the world. no offense to Putin or G, but I mean they we have a <clears throat> heck of a lot more nuclear weapons and if you're the- se- secretary of defense, you are de you are in the line of command and control of that so just saying I did that in eleven months, I equate this to uh basically the the on <clears throat> equipment manager for the Boston Red sox, all of a sudden you know working down there for. In my case, 30 years, gets the call, you're the GM now, head on up. And, you know, I got to tell you, I wasn't intimidated. Worked with the government, been in the military, worked at the highest levels and seen how it worked. And, you know, so just like the equipment manager, you know where all the the skeletons are, you know how the thing works. So off we went and uh, there I was in the inside. What I'll do for the next couple minutes is describe to you some of my thoughts about the future and what we're facing. I'm not running for office. No offense, Congressman. That's your world. Uh, I've got no vested interest in that. You all have been enormously great. uh, I'm grateful to your generosity to me and my family. I get an enormously generous pension from my service in the military, so I'm just going to let her rip. You can go ahead and fire the Speaker's Committee uh, after this. If we want to have another if you have to have a separate session after this to like talk about who's going to run speakers in the future, I certainly understand. We need to talk about grand strategy. That's what we're here for. That's what the forum's about. We could talk about Top Gun Maverick and you know Navy and jets and stuff. That's that's not grand strategy. There's some strategic elements to that. We could talk about World War II, Europe first. Uh, that's strategy, but it's not grand strategy. Grand strategy in the United States. People that develop strategy, there are four elements. It's called the dime, D-I-M-E. Gotta dumb it down for people like me. So D, diplomacy, I, information, M, military, E, economics. How you meld those and how you fund those and how you bring those together determines your grand strategy. And that's what we have to decide now because what you decide now and all those capabilities and how you do that decides what we can do as a country with our foreign policy. Right now, in the dime, the M, the military, consumes $1.25 trillion of your dollars a year. $1.25 That's 50% of our discretionary spending. The money that is not that we can uh, move around to different things, it's not Social Security, it's not Medicare, 50% of your money is being spent on the military. The I, information, not even a line item. This is, my facts and figures come from like the official government website. So this isn't like I made this up and just went to some crazy website. The I is so important, it doesn't even register as a line item. The E, economics, you kinda, it's really hard to calculate this, but it comes in right about 1%. And then the D, the D, okay, with 50% military, 3% for the D, diplomacy. General Mattis, Secretary of Defense Mattis, had a great line when he was testifying on the Hill one time for his money. He argued to Congress that they should spend more money on diplomacy than the military, and he had a great line. He said, if you don't give State Department more money, you need to give me more money for ammunition. And that's the essence of grand strategy. So my contention right now, when we spend 50% of your money on the military, we are completely out of balance and we we have made a strategic decision. We've made a strategic decision that the military is probably the answer to all of our problems and all our solutions. My contention is you should look at the geostrategic and the geopolitical situation before we start doing budget math and deciding how, to allocate or how you allocate your resources. We're in the midst of a transition from the global war on terrorism to competition, great power competition, China, everybody. So that's, we're reorienting the Department of Defense and our national security <coughs> ecosystems towards great power competition. We're in the middle of a revolution in military affairs. What that means, I don't have my cell phone on me. In the old days, DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, they invented the internet, global positioning system. They basically invented modern technology. The engine for change and technological innovation was in the Department of Defense and they spent a huge amount of money. But we all know now that it's switched the greatest degree of innovation is happening in the public sector. And still, with artificial intelligence, machine learning, quantum computing, all these things, you know, Ender's Game, great book, that's it, you know. You're going to have access to the entire history of military affairs at your fingertips. That's where we're going, and we're returning during the Cold War. Remember, we had these exquisite weapon systems that cost a ton of money, and we had very few of them and it was the right approach then we ultimately bankrupted our major com- threat then the the soviet union remember star wars everybody i i belittled it at the time i'm like this is the silliest thing i've ever heard i think most historians now recognize that that play and how we use the information component i talked about the dime the information component was so critical in showing the soviet union that they couldn't they couldn't contest and they couldn't compete with us in broader bound class and Austin and whatnot. Uh, so we're in the midst of a strategic reordering right now. Uh, unstable, unpredictable is how we I think I described the geostrategic, geopolitical environment. Please feel free to argue with me during question and answers. But we're refighting the Cold War. What your $1.25 trillion is going towards are Cold War-era weapons. Let me give you an example. The F-35 Plane. That's the new fighter plane that we are investing in. It's exquisite. This thing's a flying computer. It's the most amazing thing in the world. Life of the program, it's $1.5 trillion. When I was in the Pentagon for my last job as the Acting Secretary of Defense, someone said it's the most expensive military procurement in the history of the world. And I said, please stop. Could you go back and look at that? And I want you to look at the Roman road network that they built throughout Europe and use that thing. You know, we've got a bunch of business people and economists in here. Use that thing where you translate from current dollars back to there. great kids. They come back. They're like, nope, Roman road network costs less than the F-35 will over the course of the program. I guarantee you in 2000 years you will not see a single (laughs) F-35, and when you're in London and you're going outside on the M-5, an ancient Roman road, that will still be there. (laughs) So Ford-class aircraft carrier, that's $14 billion for one of them. We're going to build a couple of them. We currently have 12 aircraft carriers. The last version we bought was half as much. So think about this. Now, I'm all about technology, but... For heaven's sakes, your car in a couple years doubled in cost. That's what we're doing right now. And so we're optimized right now for these really short high-tech wars. What are the Chinese doing? What are the Russians doing? The Russians not having good luck with any of this, so let's just we could talk about that later. Let's talk about the Chinese, our major threat. Hypersonic missiles, they are investing in technology. So those 12 aircraft carriers that we're talking about, $14 billion a copy, not gonna survive the first round of fighting if heaven forbid we ever get in a fight. But these are the things that we need to think about as a, as a people about where we invest. A lot of business people here, what do you do during unpredictable and chaotic times? You hedge, you don't overinvest in anything. You just hold, keep your powder dry, keep your resources, control your spending and only invest in things that limited investment that could have high payoff later. It's time to kind of rethink how we do these things. I talked about these aircraft carriers and the Chinese with their hypersonic missiles. Our current military is desi- is not will not survive a major engagement. We're gonna move, you're gonna have this huge contest. It's gonna be incredibly deadly and violent, but then all of that high-tech stuff is gone. You've used it all because when it's so expensive that each missile is a million dollars, you run out of missiles. So my solution is we need to move beyond refighting the Cold War. We need to construct a force that has endurance and resilience Small force, highly enabled, with a huge tail of National Guard citizen-soldiers behind, which I'm going to cover in a moment. You survive the initial combat, and then it's just going to be a war of attrition and a long, protracted war. That's how we need to prepare to counter what the Chinese are doing. Their vested interests at stake. Who remembers Eisenhower and the military-industrial complex? We all remember that. Ike's spinning in his grave right now. I call it MAME C. I came up with a new one, writing a book. It'll be in there. Military, academic, industrial, media, entertainment, congressional complex. So we have Main C-squared. That's the big takeaway for the day. Kind of start, if you can, start putting that out there. Have people invite me up to talk some more. And those vested interests aren't going to give up without a fight. The current model that we're dealing with, with these hyper-expensive weapons that aren't going to work in the next conflict, uh, they're not going to give that up without a fight. I don't, I used to really get disappointed with MAMC, military industrial complex, go with the Eisenhower thing, all right. Military industrial complex, I used to get upset with that, like really angry. Actually, I don't anymore this incentive system that we have established as Americans for our uh, military-industrial complex, they're just optimized. That's what we do in America, right? Free market. They have optimized the T. And where I am right now is the small, innovative companies, and there are tons in Maine, Massachusetts, that are thinking about this, and it's all low-cost stuff, right? Because I talked about how DARPA doesn't ex- isn't the driver. It's all out there right now. And Smedley Butler won two medals of honor, World War I uh, hero. Uh, he wrote this boor- book called War is a Racket, right after uh, World War I. That's a, it's a scree, right? It's like, ah, it's all about the, the munitions manufacturers. And I don't mean to be Smedley Butler, uh, but there's something that we, there's, some, there's a kernel to truth to the current situation. But, you know, we have agency, so here's my solution. we got to starve the beast. You do not have to be strategically nimble and creative when you have $1.25 trillion a year. You can do everything. We need to, it's going to happen regardless because, frankly, we just can't keep printing money. I know there are probably some believers in here of the new economic theory that says you just print money as long as the government's printing money. It's good, it's all fine. I probably think maybe we should take a look at that, and I can sell you some, to- if anybody's interested in tulips futures, please get with me after. I'll uh, help you out with that and your investment portfolio. Um, I'm, I just have a contention that we need to shrink the spending on that, and that will force, we've got great people in the military, we have great people in our national security ecosystems, they're going to come up with some super innovative ways to do this that protects us more. Cold. Cold War's been gone for 30 years. <laughs> we continue to invest. We invest more than during the Cold War with poorer outcomes. We haven't won a war in quite a while. So we need to force change, and the only way you can do that in government, as many of you know who have served in the expats from Washington, D.C., in government service, like half of you out there, I think uh, recognizing will support me with the fact that only through spending, can you control behavior there? Here's my idea. Like, let's do that now, deliberately, before the crisis. But that's not my biggest concern. My biggest concern is civil-military relationships. This, this complete, we're out of balance with the military, and that has a distorting effect on our society is my contention. And frankly, don't listen to me. Go on the interweb type in Thomas Jefferson or, uh, or Madison and go standing army. They have said everything that needs to be said in the subject. This country has never been founded, has never supported a large standing army. I agree it was the right thing to do after the end of World War II and during the Cold War. And then George Herbert Walker Bush, another great manor, just saying. Uh, you know, did... He and Scowcroft and his team did an unbelievable job of winding down the Cold War, but we still have the same structure and we're spending more. So, when I, then on top of that, after September 11, 2001, there was just an unbridled expansion of the executive branch not malicious, that's how our government works, balance of powers, executive branch, feckless Congress right then and now, decided, like, what the heck, you know, executive branch just made these huge overreaches. Authorization for the use of military force, which is still in use right now, 21 years later, for Al-Qaeda is being used throughout the world. I think your senator, Senator King, probably has some things to say about that. He's not a big fan of continuing that. I'm really, just another great American, I would argue, is your independent senator. Both of, well, they're not both independent. I know that. Uh, so why, why are we in this situation? Your military, only 1% of American citizens serve. I know you know that. 6% are veterans. That We've decided to do that when we shut down the all-volunteer force. Your military now is a family business. Like, in the old days where everybody served, gone. Probably the most significant indicator of someone's ability to be recruited into the armed services is that they had a parent that served. And also, I hate to say it, you guys are doing, Maine's doing great, 10% of Mainers are veterans. You, got, you guys are quirky up here and you do things differently and you have huge innovative views and are trying to change the world for the, America for the better. But the rest, there are only a couple zip codes in America that really have heavy military presence. So there's absolutely no uh, political constituency right now for the military. And that's very problematic when our military grows separated from the people that it's serving. A military installation is a gated community right now. You can go. My wife and I lived 27 years on military installations. You can go for weeks without ever leaving the military installation. You got a, you got a grocery store. You got a bowling alley. You have a theater. You got uh, clubs to go. Restaurants. You never have to leave. Well, I find that extremely uh, discouraging. And there's, an, and then uh, finally, this over. This almost deification of our military is so not in character with our country. And that's happened because the military's allowed itself, not malicious again. After the Vietnam War, we all thought that like, don't blame the soldier, blame the, you know, whatever. And um, I've gone up on the Capitol Hill, both in uniform and wearing something like this, nicer suit, believe me. You go, wear your suit up there. No one here has worn a tie in 15 years, I know, but, you know, (laughs) we're back. Those of you that remember the machine where you'd have to put on your suit and go up to Capitol Hill, when you go up there in uniform, you're treated with kid gloves. Oh, Colonel so-and-so, General so-and-so, thank you for coming. Thank you for your insights. And then the poor civilian that's representing the civilian oversight, which is really, that's the thing, the Constitution and stuff gets absolutely wire brushed I got wire brushed good last night you congressman i 'll tell you what this is a great crowd, smarter than all of us and but so you go up there and you just get wire brushed. A lot of people last night you could you should go up on the hill. you should plan to serve and go up there and talk to uh, talk to our military <laughs> there's something out of balance on that. We have a long tradition in this country of you know, questioning in the military. So where do we go? Um, you know, I think we're out of balance. I think criticism of the military is quintessentially American, and I think we need to go back to that tradition, and we need to kind of reorient. There's, the, we have a citizen, we have a volunteer <coughs> army, no one is drafted anymore, and they're not, they're not above reproach. And we need to ask hard questions, and hopefully I've developed a couple ideas for you. Uh, so Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, we have no existential threat right now. We still have these two great oceans on both sides of us. Chinese can Chinese cannot attack us. They can attack us with cyber, and I, the future programs are going to be great. you're covering those threats. But at the end of the day, that's, that plays to our strength actually, because we have enormously talented people in, in that sector of our economy. I think, I strongly believe we need to go back to the tradition of the citizen-soldiers, where the vast majority of our, our military serves in the communities that they are sworn to uphold and protect. I know that's a police term, but it's the same sort of thing. A protective mentality and not a warrior mentality. I got to tell you, sometimes I get a little depressed. I read the news, oh my gosh, and you kind of get down and out, and the dark conspiracies that swirl. And um, you know, sometimes you do get a little, I get a little bit down in the mouth, Uh, but you know, we've been through, we've been through stuff before. We didn't have social media and whatnot, but we did fight a civil war. We saw fought a second civil war in the sixties, this country, you know, we've, founders jacksonian changes progressive 73 elections where we transformed our government i think we have the ability to transform our government again and we have agency and we, uh you know we do, no existential crisis and at the end of the day that you know we come come from a long line of uh of anti-militarists and those that recognize that uh Right now is the time to come home, refit, rearm, rethink about the future instead of just doing the stuff that we used to do. But what really motivates me at the end of the day, which really gives me hope, two things. One, Eric and that defeat in Afghanistan last year broke my soul. And then to see people, Americans, not the government, Americans that cared, came together and Our military did a great job, got 125,000 people out, but what really changed things were the contributions of people like Eric and a lot in this room who, on their own time, their own resources, said, we're going to help. That gives me hope. And then the final thing, I know it sounds cliche, but forums like this and what you're doing here and trying to bridge the gap between different organizations, thoughts, parties, and having a discussion about these matters <clears throat> is critical, and we need to expand. And this, to me, we the Congressman and I had a nice little chat. He goes, you know, Maine, we do things differently. We're doing things really innovative here, and I couldn't agree more. And really, the future of this country is back local, decisions shouldn't come out of D.C. You all need to decide how this world's going to work and our national security ecosystem and what our grant strategy is going to be. Thank you so much for having me here, having my wife here and giving me the opportunity. This is the first time that I've talked publicly about these matters. It's a little contentious right now, a little hyper partisan out there right now, Uh, but thank you for inviting me and giving me the chance to get my thoughts on this really, really important matter. And thanks for all you, what you're doing and trying to uh, drive change in this country for the better. And I'll take any questions you got, please, or have.
1: Thank you very much, Chris. You've given us a lot to think about, that's for sure. Um, while they start collecting questions, I usually take the uh, prerogative of the moderator and ask the first question. And I know you've talked about uh, 50% of discretionary spending goes to the military. Um, but why is that? I mean, is it... Uh, Eisenhower's uh, military, industri- uh, military industrial uh, complex? Is it uh, Congress will unwilling to act? Why is it?
2: I think at the end of the day, uh, thank goodness we're at a, an era of relative peace, sort of. I mean, we don't have a draft. Say what you want. Uh, I really think we've lost focus. I think, you know, we we get more concerned with our cell phones and whatnot, and ultimately the purpose of our government is to uh, establish and protect our democracy. And so I think we've lost the bubble, and I don't mean to be conspiratorial, but I think there's a kernel of truth to the idea that the current system wants us to be kind of placid and not involved. Because it's a lot easier to govern when you guys are just quiet. I mean, it's, it's a good deal, right? I mean, yeah, pass the budget. Nobody cares. So I think that's I think it's kind of a holistic thing about where we are as a country right now. And we just haven't had to pay attention. But we kind of need to pay attention again. Oh, my gosh, George. How many questions are we mm-hmm. going to do? Be up here this tapping it kind of all day. Up.
1: Someone else was thinking along the same lines. What practical approach... What is a practical approach to dealing with vested interests that need to continue projects like the f35 how can we i mean you say we need to be more proactive, uh, but i mean which buttons do we push
2: first off, I fundamentally believe that Congress is feckless and is uh, has not is not we, we lack effective oversight of what 's going on in the Pentagon right now, so i 'll tell you what I would be happy well. It comes back to, we need to recognize, this happens all the time in our history. We know that. Like, we're always kind of, it takes a while to adjust, and we are going to adjust to a high-tech, different type of national security architecture. Uh, but it's gonna sound really, really hackneyed and like I'm playing to the crowd, but we need a little bit more of this. We need a little bit more people, and frankly, Senator King, I think, is great about that, asking the hard questions. Uh, But ultimately, we're gonna have to reform the acquisition structure because, and you guys actually have a role in that. That's law, you know? So those are your elected officials. Uh, But, okay, I'll just, I think we need to open up, well, if more people know about what happens in the Department of Defense, which means, back to my point about expanding the National Guard dramatically. So, you know, 30% of you in here were like, yeah, you know. I know what he's talking about. I think uh, information will be critical as well, and I'm kind of tap dancing on that one. I could go on all day, but we got more questions.
1: Um, Let me stick with the money part of it. How specifically would you spend more money on diplomacy? What are we not doing that we should be doing?
2: Well, I think the economic tool of power is so powerful. I, I just say what's on my mind. I'll be getting hate mail on Facebook and whatnot after this. I think United States Agency for International Development is a remarkable organization. I think that's a tool for good. The problem is there are political constituencies that drive funding to certain projects and whatnot. I think uh, the we should expand our diplomatic presence overseas. Where are we at right now? We're not. You know, we we drew we drew down. There should. Like, you know, you have some embassies that are covering, like, six, eight countries. Come on, let's go. We can afford it. Take a little bit from the military. Let's get our people out there. Now the counter argument, George, is like, kids don't want to travel these days. They just want to stay at home. I don't believe that for a second. I believe if we put in place some incentives for education, training, uh, and, you know, paying off loans and whatnot, I think, I mean, our... Our kids love to travel. I think they'd gladly go overseas and, and uh, represent the country. So a couple ideas, but when you get down to like what line items are we going to change, I can get back to you. I'll, I'll do a paper on that and come back and present <laughs> in February. <laughs>
1: <laughs> then there's a, uh, some of the people out there are thinking the same same way I did when I was writing my notes on this. Um, is the military material provided to Ukraine an example of the weapons that we should be investing in? I mean, they have, we've been sending them some more sophisticated weapons which seems to be changing the course of that conflict.
2: The vaunted HIMARS, the high mobility artillery rocket system, love it. Great system. It has changed uh, how the ukrainians are doing because the whole problem was the russian artillery outranged the ukrainian artillery and that's a problem believe me like oh my gosh we can't reach out and touch them i would argue here though and here's the thing i talked about unmanned i talked about drones you've seen that extensively i got an idea does anybody know what one high mars rocket costs there's six of them in a pod. That's hundred thousand dollars per round. An artillery round, old school, you know, let, uh, Civil War, you know, uh, one hundred fifty-five millimeter rounds, about one thousand five hundred dollars. One thousand five hundred versus one hundred thousand. And then I got an idea. You guys got a lot of grandkids and kids that have those silly drones. I got an idea. You can buy one of those off the shelf for what, four hundred fifty bucks. That's basically can be an artillery shell as well. So I think uh, what we've provided has been a game changer for the Ukrainians, and it's a testament for our technological sophistication. But back to my point, it will not last in a long war. And if you're the Chinese, you go, how many do they got? Well, you can, re- you can go online now and find out how many Javelin missiles, which we use to kill tanks, we have in our inventory. I think it's like 7,000. You're like, okay, get them to shoot all those, and then what are we, what, what we gonna do then? It's back to like hand grenades and going up there, crawling up there, and like jamming stuff into their road wheels.
1: There's just two that are kind of related. Let me read both of them. Um, one is if, if you were a citizen and had a certain amount of money to use for political leverage, where would you give it? Who, and the other one is, is there anyone out there that counts that's paying attention? That is, who should we be supporting you know, if, you're, if I'm writing my letters, who should I write to? Right, I'll, sh- g-
2: I'll go there. Uh, I think it's time. I think my biggest frustration with the current crop of political leadership that we have elected to D.C. is it's the oldest Congress, it's the oldest Senate we've ever had. And what really bothers me, and I've had way too many interactions up there, is the inability—or no, it's not inability the decision by our political leadership not to develop the next generation of leadership. And that bugs me. And you can say, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. Watch Nancy Pelosi on 60 Minutes with Leslie Stahl. It was a beautiful interview. It was cupcakes. They They were just feeding her cupcakes. And then Leslie Stahl goes, and tell me about AOC and why you're not supporting her. Her whole face changes, and it was like game on. And that to me summed up. What the problem we're having right now. So where do you invest? I invest local, number one, invest local. Don't spend any money on the national races because change is gonna come from down here. That's where I go. I support, by the way, I support like any veteran that's running on the left or the right because I just, and not because veterans are inherently better or anything, it has nothing to do with that, but I do love the fact that they're willing to put their hat in the arena and they're willing. To, they 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 see things. They've experienced having to work cross cultures, cross uh, generations. So that's where I put my money. Talking from the heart, there clearly.
1: And the, the, some questions on this citizen soldier aspect of what you talked about. Should we reinstate the draft? And if yes, would you change it in any way?
2: I defer to you, but I'm having a book come out uh, soon, and this is I'll do a shameless pitch for my book what's it called? Soldier Secretary, coming out later. Uh, that's one of the recommendations I make, is we need to have a program like America Serves uh, that already exists, and we need to expand those. So I don't think it should just be the military. I think it needs to be green energy. It can be uh, environment. It can be work and health care. I don't care, but I don't, I get a, I get a lot of Pushback sometimes from libertarians who are like you, the government cannot tell people what to do, and I kind of appreciate that. So I'm fine with putting in a waiver. I'm fine with putting in a conscientious objector status. But I, I don't know how else we're going to bring back those bonds. Everybody's heard those stories about World War II where, you know, the guy from Yale ended up with some person from Alabama, and, like, all of a sudden they are in the foxhole together and they're friends for the rest of their life, and they started to understand each other better. I, I don't see a better way right now. If anybody has it, uh, I'll, when I, my paperback version comes out, I'll update it with your ID, and I'll give you credit. Don't worry. <laughs>
1: Then um, somebody thinks it's somewhat would be somewhat difficult to reinstate the draft, and they ask, if you can't reinstate the draft, how would you foster uh, interest in the military?
2: National service. I don't think it's the draft. Maybe that's just like maybe I'm just using Orwellian language. Uh, but if 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 you're if you're a citizen soldier, and you're responsible for the doggone. Um, armory downtown uh, and you know that that person is inculcated with your values and your ethics and your culture, I think that changes dramatically then from the centralized thing that we have right now and I think the centralized thing we have right now and I, I was beating around the bush It's the values and the culture are great as long as they are respected under the constitution and we're seeing I see it that there's been a change since I came in in 83 where we didn't talk about politics in the military ever. It was, you didn't talk religion, you didn't talk about um, the S word, and you didn't uh, talk about politics. And it's changed now. When I came in, it was kind of hackneyed, but it was like enlisted soldiers were primarily Democrat, officers were primarily Republican. That wasn't the case, actually, but that was the perception but we never talked about that, and what I'm seeing right now, I'm just telling you, I'm seeing a politicization in the military where there's this there's this thought that you know we do you know we ho- we have higher values than the rest of the country. No, they don't. And good leaders good leaders crush that, believe me. But it only takes one bad leader, a la Napoleon. You pick your pick your uh, historical ana- analog.
1: And there's several people wanted to pick up on your comments related to China and not just China but others in the world. One is is there any other world threat other than the power battle of the US and China that you think is particularly threatening? Foreign,
2: foreign threat?
1: Foreign threat. I think they're
2: the, I think they I think they're probably the principal threat right now. North Koreans, come on. All right, they're going to they have nuclear weapons. They're not a existential threat here 's the thing with the chinese i 'll just got experts here uh, there's in the United States military you have conventional military tanks, planes, you know wars fighting then there's a thing called irregular warfare, which is primarily information where you use psychological warfare you try to develop relationships it 's called irregular warfare I would my contention with the Chinese is totalitarian authoritarian, author, authoritarian leaders fear one thing more than anything, instability, which results in uh, domestic chaos. They, when we create huge standing militaries, they use that as an excuse for like why they need to be in charge. So we're reinforcing the narrative that we are a threat to them. I like the old days, kind of the revolutionary ways where we fought kind of with deception and information and values. Back to diplomacy. I mean, come on. Why aren't we competing against the Chinese more in Africa for rare earth manuals? Because we don't have enough embassies out there. Every one of those countries needs... It's a tough tour, believe me. Some of you have been out there. I know that. But there are Americans that are willing to do it.
1: So if China's our enemy, is there anything we can do to make uh, them our friend or ally?
2: I think there... Absolutely. I think there's some places that are ripe for uh, joint... Uh, efforts, environment—they have their number. What are they? The number two polluter in the world? We're number one, right? I assume. Just that's the way we roll, right? Or are they number one? I don't know. There's definitely uh, some ways to do that. And you—you you hear the old-time diplomats, and I, sometimes you're like, "Okay, I got it. Talking's good." Uh, but I think the key thing is their strategic culture is deception and irregular warfare. So why wouldn't we do the same thing to them? And one of those is you know, bringing together the dime differently and instead of focusing on the M, focus on these other areas. I think there. do we have the diplomats to do it now? You guys got a lot of ex-diplomats in here, I don't know. Maybe we just don't have the, the ability to do that. I think we do. So uh, what other areas are there? Uh, economic prosperity, I don't think, I think there's probably some sort of uh, relationship. May, are we just going back to balance of powers? There's probably some way to come up, I don't know, I'm just a military guy, I'm just an army guy.
1: This is a question that's a little different because it's on the question of uh, related to the uh, intelligence community and you would uh, made some comments on that in your, in your talk. In the wake of 9-11, the Director of National Intelligence Structure was created. What has been the track record of this organization? Has it been worth it? Has the intended effect of integrating the intelligence community been met?
2: I think we had 18 elements of the intelligence community, 18. Hey, I'm all about, and I understand our system of government, we like confederations, we don't like anybody to be too powerful. I think we're getting a little out of control. DNI is still a, a director of national intelligence, is still a work in process. They still don't have enough money so that they can really control the intelligence community. I'll tell you what I think: we need to go to four intelligence agencies. Uh, diplomat we need to have military intelligence, diplomatic intelligence, uh, economic intelligence, and then we'll have one left, which is information, and we that's kind of cyber information. Throw. Uh, so we need to downsize the size of the... It's threat to, it's threat to the republic, let's just be clear. We have how many intelligence people in there? I'm going to get stuff thrown at me. Thank goodness you guys don't have lunch yet. I know some of you would be throwing, like, rolls at me right now. But we still have this Cold War. It was the right thing to do for the Cold War. With technology right now, why do we need so many people? Technology with these algorithmic uh, assessment programs that you can go through and you can crunch all that stuff down, you don't need that many people. So... I think we need to totally innovate and recreate our intelligence system. It's time to do it as now. We're still doing a Cold War intelligence system. What, what sense does that make? Cold War's been over 30 something years.
1: And you've been talking about U- United States uh, enemies and shouldn't uh, that also include some of the domestic uh, t- terrorist groups as well as foreign groups? Yeah.
2: I, I'm, I'll tell you what, the FBI has had some issues that's a leadership thing. Those FBI agents in the field, you don't want to have the FBI in your case. And those, those, the, the people that are involved in domestic terrorism or in political violence right now, they're, they're in a bad place because the FBI's got their number. I really strongly believe that's a law enforcement function. I, the thing I love about a field agent is they have to, what are those forms they have to fill? Oh. Every activity they have, they basically have to fill out a form. I forgot the number, but it's a two or three form. And at first, I used to hate that because it was so bureaucratic, but now I realize why they do that. That's really good for us as Americans, that everything they do is documented and done correctly. And it provides a degree of oversight that gives me confidence in, in the field agent out there that's working these cases. So absolutely, it's a, I think it's a law enforcement thing, because as soon as you get your intelligence community, the FBI is an intelligence arm for domestic work. That's what they're chartered for. That's what we pay them for. We've got to be really, really careful to, about how we uh, think about this because we just the wholesale trammeling of uh, American civil liberties that we saw during the Vietnam War cannot happen again. Not my watch. That was the we talked last night. That's the biggest reason why uh, I would not allow our military uh, to be involved in domestic law enforcement except with a valid request from uh, law enforcement or the governor. In this case, the mayor, it's a really slippery slope. We've learned this lesson before. You all, many of you, have lived that. We do not need to learn that lesson again.
1: You've kind of answered this, but the this question is bound to happen, to, bound to be raised. What happened on January 6th? And in retrospect, would you have done anything differently?
2: You know, I, I, in the Army, <clears throat> Your army has this thing called the after action review system. It's basically Maoist with self-criticism. It's the most brutal thing you'll ever see. Everything you do, everyone gets to comment about how screwed up you were as the leader. And the idea is, it's actually accepted. It's pretty scarring the first 50 times you do it, but it's inculcated into the culture. And you, And now it's just second nature. Everybody gets to criticize because the idea is to improve performance. I look back on what your military did on January 6th and the decisions I made, and I'm the harshest critic of my own performance because that's the way I was raised. I was a Green Beret. That's what your Special Operations Forces are known for, is always trying to improve. And when it comes down to the constitutional principles... Now, would, would it have been better to make a call five minutes earlier or five minutes later? Yeah, absolutely. There are things I would have done differently. But at the end of the day... The precepts of our nation were my concern, that we'd not have American soldiers and American service members fighting American citizens in the halls of the Capitol. The police had 10,000 cops in the street that day. All of our assessments and all of our meetings prior, the cops were like, we got this, military, we need 250 of you, you got it, you need anything else, don't need anything else. So at the end of the day, that is not something that I'm going, when I'm old and like looking back at my career, I'm going to have angst and and go, oh, I made the wrong call. I stand by so strongly with the decisions that I made and what your military did that day that, no, I, I, absolutely, there's some onesies and twosies. But that's the nature of operations. You know, it's not a movie. It's not a Tom Clancy book. Military operations are incredibly complex. Fog, friction of war, talk about Clausewitz. All of that existed. And then in the domestic situation, your military should not be involved. I'm just telling you, if you take one thing away from this, do not let your military become involved in domestic law enforcement until unless civil society breaks down. That's the role back to National Guard. And I want that person to be from my hometown. I don't want it to be somebody from some other place. If you have a natural disaster, of course, National Guard does that. But that would be my my one warning, because we have to get the title of the talk and warnings for the future. Wasn't that it, George? <laughs> so that's my warning. Do not allow your military to become involved in domestic law enforcement. It's a recipe for disaster.
1: And then we'll just wrap with... Um With this, your views on, with this country so divided between left and right, how do we come up with a unified position that we can put as our face to the world?
2: Is is there hope? Well, I know, I know a lot. I told you, it it does seem hopeless at times. But we're, that that dog, everybody's got their phones and, and we've got, it's this hyper frenetic environment and hatred gets more clicks than, you know, goodness. But you know what? We're all, I bet you, I just bet you, all of us here are fairly centrist. Like, we're, we're not on either extreme. There might be one or two of you here. I don't know. Uh, there's always one or two. Uh, but I think the vast majority of us are probably pretty close, and we just want what's good for America, what's good for the Constitution, what's good for the future, what's good for our kids, our grandkids, et cetera. So I actually, if we took our agency back and stopped listening to these, these screes about the hopelessness, and the helplessness, our helplessness, I think we, I, I'm cautiously optimistic. And, but that's kind of, that's the thing that I want, I think we all can continue to do that as long as we're talking, and it's, it's rough right now, no doubt about it. But come on, man, this is it, Mid-Coast Forum on Foreign Relations. It's a place where we talk about these things and kind of without all the political venom and whatnot, and just try to use rational thought and kind of the founder's principles, in my humble opinion, sir.
1: Well, thank you very much. My humble opinion as well.
0: You've been listening to Speaking in Maine on Maine Public Radio. Today was a talk from Christopher Miller. If you missed part of the program or want to hear it again, you can always find it on our website, mainepublic.org. Click on radio to access this program and many other archives Speaking in Maine programs. Music in this hour comes from Our Alarm Clock. Susan Tran is the executive producer of Speaking in Maine. And Speaking in Maine is produced by me, KG Kimaladun. Thanks for joining us. This is Maine Public Radio.